You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. Well, welcome one, welcome all, whether you're deep in the heart of Federation territory or just peeking in from parts unknown. It's Monday night at 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern. You've got your eyes glued to the screen. It can only mean Mission Log Live. I'm John Champion. I'm Holly Amos. Glad you have all tuned in to have a chat with your Star Trek pals tonight. Every Monday as we do, tonight we're going to look at those areas where science and science fiction collide. Get your questions and comments ready and then call us. We'll introduce you to Dr. Charles Adler, who's going to tell us all how to travel at warp speed or something to that effect. Well, look, if he can't do that, I'm sure he can give us instructions on how to build a transporter, whatever. So, you know, if you want one of those two, give us a call. You know how. Click on the Zoom meeting link or use the one tap from your smartphone or call us at 699-900-6833 and enter the meeting code and password that you see on screen. You'll talk to Earl. He'll patch you through. We'll have a chat. It'll be great. And, um, you know, in case anybody in our audience maybe uh, is not familiar with uh, Dr. Adler's work. Uh, I'm telling you, I, I watched a lecture earlier and uh, some mind-blowing stuff in there about uh, what we do at the end of the universe. So if you want to find out, then, you know, pay attention tonight, call in, we'll answer that and many other questions. Um, as we do each week, Holly, do you want to say hi to some folks who are hanging out in the chat? Uh, let's see, there's... Uh, Mom and there's, Dad. <laughs> there's, there's your dad, and he says Mom is watching too, hi. so isn't that nice? There's Chris Riker, there's Paul, uh, the first of many Pauls that we'll have tonight, I'm sure. Uh, although Paul Wright says he's got an early day, so he'll catch us on the replay. Uh, Chris says, uh, John, Holly, Earl, Gandalf. Uh, so I, I these, uh, I, I don't know, maybe he's uh, caught some of the feed uh, the Earl was working on earlier. Not sure. Uh, we got Dave Taylor. We got uh, Alan. We got uh, Carlos. We got uh, who else? Who, uh, we got Dave. We got other Dave. So good to see. Oh, Mike Richards. We'll be talking about Mike in just a moment and uh, what he's been doing for Roddenberry lately. Scott Palm. Our old friend Scott Palm hanging out in the chat. By the way, Alan already putting in his vote for a replicator. So I think that that's something that he wants Dr. Adler to get to. Alan, definitely call in with that. He will explain it. He'll tell you how to make one. By the end of the night, you'll you'll have a, a replicator up and running, I promise. Anne-Marie Siegel, glad to see you. <laughs> Anne-Marie says, uh, we have a 900 number. No, 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 wait, it's safe. Yes, yes, it is a safe 900 number that we have. So uh, you know what to do. Call in. There's Brent, there's other Paul, and uh, there's John Cooley. Cooley. So hello, everybody. There's Alan Perry. Lots of people joining us live, and uh, you know what to do. Give us a ring. Holly, before I get to all the stuff about what's coming up in uh, Mission Log Land, uh, what have you been up to? Catch me up. Catch me up on uh, what you're watching, what you're doing, Trek-related what? or not. Not Trek-related. I'm re-watching no. the Golden Girls right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm just going to tell you right now, we are not doing Mission Log Golden Girls. That is not something that we are adding to the list, okay? Uh... I, but but if you want to go do your own, I'm sure that we could work out a deal with Roddenberry. I'm sure, sure. that uh, you know there's an audience for it, and I'm sure that people in the chat will uh, be behind you to do that project. Uh, so. Trek related, though. Yes. Well, not what I'm doing, but many of you saw that uh, there was an announcement that 
Prodigy was renewed for season two. Yes. So very and exciting. And you know somebody working on that. I do. They announced that one of the new writers in the writer's room is a woman named Jen Murrow, who I am very good friends with. So I'm very excited. Excellent. She, and she's a huge Star Trek fan. She's, she was already written for writing for Star Wars. And she was like, I, I, want, I want Star Trek. And she got this opportunity <laughs> and was very excited. Nice. So I'm glad that she can publicly talk about it now. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Uh, so she's working on season two. Of which, yes. Right, right, which uh, just got announced. And um, and I guess it's kind of the perfect segue to talk about what we're doing here on Mission Log, because as everybody knows, and if you don't know, uh, please know now, uh, we launched Mission Log Prodigy, Mission Log The Orville. Prodigy is a little weird, though. Their first season is 20 episodes, and it has now been broken up twice. <laughs> At least that's the latest of what's being reported. So the first five episodes, including that combined pilot, uh, that will get us through Thanksgiving week. Then it's going to go away for about five weeks, come back after the first of the year. Then they'll run the next five episodes. Then it's taking another break. We don't know exactly for how long, but uh, we'll find out. And, of course, Earl and Ashley are doing Mission Log Prodigy. Go to podcast.roddenberry.com to get all the latest uh, distribution channels for all the Roddenberry podcasts. That's where you'll find Prodigy. That's also where you will find Mission Log The Orville. And uh, Mike, hanging out in the chat tonight, he is one of our hosts, along with Jessica Lynn Verdi, and that show is awesome. And both of those shows have their own video feed as well. So if you go to youtube.com slash Roddenberry Entertainment or youtube.com slash Roddenberry Prod, that's where you will find those shows. And uh, kind of fun. Earl has done a bang-up job on the graphics, and it just it's a nice, fun way to watch that show. And Holly, I don't know if you've listened to any of our Prodigy episodes yet. Um, you, don't worry. You're, you're, you know, you're not being judged here or anything if you haven't. But I will say... Do absolutely, because as good a job as Norm and Ashley do, when you hear kids call in, I want to hear the kids about what they love. Oh, it absolutely melt your cold, dead heart. But does so. it re does it like renew your faith in future generations? So much. Oh, great. So because okay. that's that was yes. my whole. I was like, that's why I want to listen. I want to hear the kids and be like, oh, I feel safe yeah. with these children eventually running the world. <laughs> yes. Yes. And and look, this is not just to blow smoke uh, uh, for the boss, but uh, Rod's kid, Zale, who is a regular caller now, he is so good and he's so smart and he's so into the show. So, oh, um, yeah. I mean, come for Zale, stay for everybody else because everybody else is wonderful and uh, it will absolutely uh, melt away the cynicism. You will love it. So, Check that out. Um, coming up on Mission Log this week. So, uh, of course, next week on Mission Log Live, well, we'll be talking to all of you and our special guest, TBA. This week on regular Mission Log, oh, DS9, we're dropping bada bing, bada bang. That comes out on Thursday. Cannot wait to have a chat with everybody in our Discord about that. Tomorrow night, Norman and I will be recording Penumbra. So we're starting that mad dash to the end of DS9's seventh season. And uh, you can always get early recordings through our Patreon and join us for those live weekly chats on Discord. Hey, and uh, I just found this out today. Uh, some of our friends who are going to LA Comic Con and the Star Trek track, James Kerwin, Larry Nemechek, I'll be 
there on Saturday the 4th. The whole convention is December 3rd through the 5th at the L.A. Convention Center downtown. And, uh, yeah, there's Trek stuff happening. So go. Go check out Comic-Con. Go check out Trek stuff. Because you know what's up. That's what you want. You want the Trek stuff there. All right. So that's enough of the business of the day. And let's, uh, oh, I love the bada bing, bada bang, bada boom, as people are saying in the chat. And David Takashi calls it otherwise known as Oceans 14. Yes, or Oceans 9. I don't know, we lose track of how many people are there. So uh, let us welcome our guest, uh, ooh, who actually just had a guest follow him. Uh, let's welcome Dr. Charles Adler. He is a physics professor at St. Mary's College of Maryland, and he is here because he is the author of Wizards, Aliens, and Starships, Physics and Math and Fantasy and Science Fiction. Welcome to the show, Dr. Adler. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for having me here. I'm greatly honored to be on your show. So, uh, thank you. Well, hey, we're we're honored to have somebody who knows what he's talking about when it comes to this uh, uh, very big picture stuff about science and science fiction. And uh, and I did notice right before you went live, uh, the cat who wandered oh, yeah. past. Cat cats pets are very welcome on the show. Oh, there you go. Oh. Okay, we get an introduction. It's a big guy. Jimmy. Jimmy is my alarm cat. <laughs> are all cats alarm cats? cats? Yeah, yeah, he is. Nice. Uh, he is the thing that wakes me up at five in every morning. So, is, it, oh. is he is he having a rough go with the time change? Most of my friends' pets are like, "Excuse me, it's dinner time," and they're like, "No, it's not." Yes, he is. He was very, very hungry when we got home this evening. So, <laughs> <laughs> very nice. Well, uh, so uh, Dr. Adler, there is so much. I, I, I want to encourage people who are catching the show tonight to look up the uh, the lecture that was recorded for the uh, Skeptic Society, where you covered a lot of the topics you get into in your book. And there is just so much. I'm going to tease it right now for people who uh, obviously weren't hearing us talk earlier about uh, your take on Star Trek Into Darkness, because I think, my friend, you and I reach on uh, a few of the issues you had with that. Um, but there's that, there's what happens at the end of the universe. But I, I want to start out with some topics that uh, that you covered, and you, I believe you talk about in your book, that are maybe a little more reachable, that are a little more real world right now. And one of those being space elevators. And, and I was so interested in in that being a concept that at first sounded like, well, here's this Interesting, fancy idea, very theoretical, but it really hasn't gone away as an idea. And, and and even just looking at sort of current pop culture science fiction, there is a new restaurant that opened in Epcot in Disney World a couple of weeks ago. And part of the premise is that you get on a space elevator nice. to get you to the restaurant that is in orbit 220 miles above the Earth. Nick so Hunter. it's yeah. kind of a, an idea that's taken hold. Uh, tell us about its science reality, if you would. So um, the basic idea behind a space elevator is that it's currently very expensive to shoot rockets and get things into orbit using rocket technology. So the idea, well, as the name implies, is basically an elevator into space, which would make it significantly cheaper to launch anything out there. Um, the trick would be that basically you'd put a, the idea as expensive the simplest form is to put a, um, a satellite in orbit and then extend a cable downwards, but also upwards so that the center of the satellite stays in orbit, the uh, stays in orbit while you're extending everything down and up kind of keeping everything balanced. 
So the center of mass more or less kind of stays in the same place. And eventually you drop one end to the ground where you tie it off. The other end extends way off into space about halfway to the moon. And so this is wow. an idea that's been around since possibly the 1890s. Uh, the Russians, uh, I think Russians claim that it was originally invented by a fellow named Tsiolkovsky, who is sometimes called the father of space travel, um, because he was one of the first people who had this idea of, of exploring space through, through rockets. But he also had this idea of kind of a proto-space elevator back, you know, around the year 1900. Huh. And it's a very fascinating idea from a science fiction perspective because it just straddles the edge of what is possible. And very, very hard to say what side it lands on because you have this structure which is basically in tension. It's basically trying to pull itself apart hmm. um, because um, – the part, the part that gets lowered to the ground is kind of is kind of rotating around more slowly than the center. The part that's above it is rotating more quickly, oh, and that sure. a lot of stress on the structure. It tends to stretch the structure outwards. And we don't, and humans have never really made any structures that are like that that are built completely, entirely in tension. Because every other structure that we have has to rest on the ground somewhere, and so you've got a structure which is thousands of times longer than the longest suspension bridge, which is kind of the closest thing that we have to it, like it, like it on Earth. Um, and it's under these huge stresses. And there are some materials that are light enough and strong enough that you might be able to make it with it. But again, it's not entirely clear because these materials mm. like carbon nanofibers have been made in the laboratory, but in nowhere near the quantity that you could actually use to make a space elevator. So it's really neat. It's a really neat structure. And um, if you could build it, you could actually put things into space at a fraction of the cost that you could with rockets, but it's not clear what the entire cost would be of building it. It's not clear what the engineering problems would be. So it's really kind of fascinating and, and fun to think about. Like That's... How, how, how quickly? <laughs> I mean, because, you <laughs> I, I know, think you, about they, whatever... shoot, they yeah. shoot those things off at like, God knows how quickly to get them into orbit as quickly as humanly, like how long would I be on this elevator? <laughs> Actually, a few days, probably. The idea actually oh, wow. slowly into space. That's that would be like a train be... ride across across the Maybe, country or something. Yeah. Something like a more like a cog railway. If you've, oh, okay. if you've ever been like, on a cog railway like up Pikes Peak, the uh, designs actually some of the designs that people have come up with have actually called for things that kind of climb up the tower rather than um, rather than being actually kind of a strict kind of a, a strict elevator. So it actually it would be very much like a railway. And in fact, you can Imagine, I don't, I'm not sure that anyone's ever done this, but some sort of a steampunk novel where you kind of take a railroad, but instead of horizontally, just kind of vertically up the structure would be kind of neat. Oh, I love this. Somebody make that happen. Yeah. I just feels, I mean, that feels like a, like a Looney Tunes. Yeah. <laughs> Something Acme would build. Like that By the way, already. well, we already have one person in the chat. Uh, Chris points out a problem with this. He, he says, I hate it. Uh, when the kid punches all two quadrillion, 349 billion five, uh, buttons on the damn space elevator, <laughs> he's right, you know, and then you're going to be in that thing for weeks. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's right. Oh, and then uh, Dave asked me, John, uh, they have a restaurant on the elevator. There is a bar. So that, that is okay. That maybe then I'm, I'm good to go. That sounds definitely like an appealing way to travel. Yeah, no, I, I like that. That's what you're thinking of. I was like, they better have some like really nice sweets for me to take a nap. In, <laughs> <right. least."> yeah. <laughs> uh, 
I would think so. Yeah. But I, 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 the, the neat thing is that it would be kind of Looney Tunes physics as well, because I think if you stepped out of the elevator, once you got past the halfway point, you wouldn't actually fall back to Earth because you'd be, the elevator would be rotating around fast enough that you'd actually be flung away from the Earth. And uh, that's one of the things that people have talked about using the elevator for is actually you, if you basically just take a satellite up to it and then let it go far enough away, the elevator itself is traveling fast enough around that it would actually go away, you know, keep on going away from the earth and just kind of be in orbit or go, you know. Oh my God. It, it, it's like it's a cartoon. It, yeah. It, 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 it's a cartoon. That is pretty amazing. Okay. So then let, let's say as we're sort of easing into this, if that's something that is still so, like I said, it, it, it seems to have captured the imagination. It's not one of these just sort of pie in the sky. We, we have the idea and then we forget it for, you know, decades or generations. It's still an idea that, that has taken root. Um, of the types of fantastical ideas that you've covered, and I know that we can get to all kinds of things, warp driver and transporters and everything. Uh, are there things that you have your eye on that you think, ooh, that, you know, maybe a generation from now, that is something that is plausible. Um, or is that where you are with the space elevator? Or is it just too, the engineering challenge is too high? I, I don't, like I said, it's very hard to come down one side or another for the space elevator. Um, I would guess if, if, if we are going to get a space elevator, it's probably, if I had to make a guess, and this is a complete guess, probably about 50 years out, if it's possible at all, when people decide hmm. it's worthwhile building. I suspect that we're probably no more than a decade away from autonomous cars. I mean, oh, I, that everyone, you know, everyone is thinking that right now. That's not just me, but I, I, I really think that there is no particularly good reason we're not going to get them in that the technology I think has gotten good enough that uh, it's bound to happen inevitably and probably more quickly than we think it's going to. Um, that's, I, that's kind of what I'm keeping my eye on right now. But again, that's, to a certain extent, that's actually not even science fiction anymore because they do really, you know, in, in a crude form, they do kind of they do kind of exist at this point. But you know, I, I'm fully on board with that. And uh, coincidentally, I just did a, a podcast a few weeks ago called. Um, Oh, why, why am I, uh, uh, oral therapy. Uh, so, you know, for, for your ears, for your mind. And, um, it, we, uh, covered a, a documentary, uh, from the 1939 World's Fair, the Futurama, the original Futurama. And one of the highlights of that was, look at these cars on a highway going more than 50 miles an hour, all driven by remote control. But it was this great idea that, you know, tons and tons of cars, but, Maintaining speed and maintaining safe distance, and you hopefully greatly reduce the impact of human error. And uh, I really, you know, I'm excited about the idea of getting to that point, and then maybe actually driving by yourself. That becomes kind of the special thing. Like you get far enough away somewhere, and the car says, "Hey, do you want to drive now?" Sure, I'll I'll drive. But being on a commute and having a car drive for me sounds great. Somebody just made a speed reference. In the Did, they? Did they? <laughs> they above 50. Thank you, David. I appreciate you. I, I, especially in Los Angeles, it's uh, it's probably a, a big treat to us. <laughs> yeah, well, well, and, and in a place like LA where there is so much traffic, a lot of that traffic is because, you know, oh, look, one car broke down on the 101 an hour ago, so it blocked up everything for miles and miles and miles. The more of that you eliminate or you have cars automatically go around, fantastic. You know, 
definitely for that. Hey, uh, we have a caller who has been waiting patiently by calling from the lower decks. It is Alan. Good to see you, Alan. How are you doing tonight? Doing great tonight, John, Holly. Uh, it's great to great to see you guys again. And uh, yeah, I just I some I, I just got this bug in my ear that said replicator. Replicator. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, Okay, yeah. well, well, wait a minute. You, you bring up the perfect because I, whenever people do interviews about Star Trek, it seems inevitable that the question becomes, you know, if you could pick a Star Trek technology to be real, what would it be? And, and look, I, I don't want to, you know, prime my guests here. Uh, the top three tend to be warp drive, right. transporter, replicator. Oh, yeah. Uh, but but I, I, I'll refrain from answering now. I want to know what you have to say, Alan, and then want to know what our, uh, what our guest has to say for that. I mean, for you, is it indeed the replicator? Because that's why you called in? I, I would say that's pretty much... If if not the top one of the top um, transporter, I'll take that risk. You know, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not it's a death machine, that. Alan. It's a it's death machine. I know it's a death machine, John. <laughs> um, re- replicator A, because uh, like you, I'm a bit of a foodie. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I happen to be playing in a D and D game where create food and water has become my character's. Uh, uh, spell de jour, and you know, I think that's kind of a replicator, although it's a really kind of a crappy replicator because it specifies that the food doesn't taste very good. Oh, um, oh and I'd no. like so you bad. know, if I keep waiting for the for the upgrade on that, but you know, but yeah, just anything that sort of creates whatever, whatever you want, whatever you want it, that's got to be that's aces, right? They don't. I mean, they don't always make what you want when you want it, whenever you want it, because you know, on the show, they have you know, they have things in place for you to be nutritional. (laughs) Like you can't just go in and order a bunch of junk food. Well, Well, yeah, there was that bonsai tree once too. Yeah, that's true. Well, well, let's see what our what our guest has to say about uh, the replicator issue. Your comment about the spell reminded me of uh, I think it was the restaurant at the Douglas Adams book, the restaurant at the end of the universe, yeah. where they had replicator that were there, which uh, created how did it go? A drink which was almost entirely, but not quite unlike tea. <laughs> yeah, that about sums it up. I mean, yeah. Uh, well, I think that the Star Trek type of replicator is a little bit unlikely just because of, um, I, you know, you, when, when Captain Picard says, Earl, you know, T, Earl Grey, hot, and the thing materializes mm-hmm. in front of him. The problem is that if you think about it, you're creating it essentially from pure energy or you're, tran- you know, you're making it somewhere else and transporting it in. But when you make something out of pure energy, no process is ever 100% efficient. And so you're always losing something of it to waste heat. And so let's assume that the process is 99.9% efficient. Are we, are we okay with that? Sure, sure. I like, that. I like that. Turning, turning energy into matter. Yeah. Um, the problem is that Einstein says E equals MC squared. And that C squared is a really big number. So that what that means is that when you're converting energy into matter, you have to use a lot of energy. And so if... 0.1% of that gets wasted as stray heat, all of a sudden you've got enough energy to boil something like 2 billion cups of tea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> 
All right. So there is a little bit of a problem there. (laughs) Wow. Wow. You have to have a really, really efficient uh, thing there. I mean, I think um, we may get, I I think we're more likely to get replicators in the sense of three, you know, something that'll 3D print food or something more like that. I mean, people are, again, people are already doing things like that with, um, I think people have used 3D printers to kind of bake chocolates. Mm Mm-hmm. If uh, you know, you're fancy, of fancy chocolate, and I, I, I suspect that other food stuffs will come along. Uh, Greg Bear, the science fiction writer Greg Bear, back in the 1980s, wrote a science fiction book in which everyone in their house had nano machines, which were effect- effectively capable of making food out of kind of whatever you shoved into them, or at least whatever organic matter you shoved into them. Although it took a while, it wasn't like the Star Trek version of it, but. Uh, and one of the characters was kind of doing ex- experimental cooking, which no one else could eat. <laughs> well, well, see, I kind of wondered about that because the, the food replicator, the whole idea on Star Trek has evolved a little bit. And in the original series, uh, they were food synthesizers. They weren't replicators. Mm. So you kind of have this idea that, and we mentioned on a mission log a long time ago, uh, that it's like the old Steve Martin joke where you, know, you go to McDonald's and it's just a vat of something and the scoop comes along and goes... Burger, <laughs> fries, you know, and it's just all made of the same stuff. And and a food synthesizer, theoretically, you have proteins, you have carbohydrates, whatever. You can kind of build those into, you know, a, a, an acceptable facsimile of what you want, as opposed to something like an automat where you have to have really specific ingredients going in before the uh, the machine can, you know, assemble or, or distribute them to you. The replicator on next gen is very much as you're describing, um, you know, pure energy coming from wherever else in the ship. Uh, it, like if everybody decides to have a cup of tea, suddenly the warp engines drop out, you know, because <laughs> they're all making tea at the same time. You so. also, you also mentioned that like they're, you know, it's either coming from nothing or it's being like transported in from somewhere. And I just mm. had this vision of like Neelix somewhere, just like when it comes in and just being like, <laughs> and then like get it out as quickly as you can. <laughs> like there's cooks somewhere, line cooks, behind the scenes that as soon as that something comes in they're just like rushed right i don't know what that's that where lucy is. yeah that's where lucy wound up after she bought star trek you know she's working still working that conveyor belt yeah exactly they're, they're, all, yeah. they're muttering to themselves how you know picard is so picky or Riker doesn't you know <laughs> Riker right. is, is, they, they want a fully cooked bird <laughs> Hey, uh, Alan, uh, uh, before we move on to any other callers and uh, go to a quick break, uh, anything else on your mind tonight other than, other than getting that replicator, man, you know? Yeah, I, you know, I, you know, that would be, that would be great. And, uh, you know, I don't care what, uh, I don't care what uh, Admiral, our, our Admiral from Discovery says, you know, how do you like them apples? Yeah. <laughs> Well, go see, there you go. So on Discovery, it's a whole other thing where, yeah, it's uh, replicating out of, well, whatever handy organic materials you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll try not to think about that. Alan, pleasure. That <laughs> <laughs> pleasure to see you tonight. Take care, man. Adios, everybody. Take care. 
Hey, uh, if you will all indulge me, i got a couple more callers standing by, but I'm going to very quickly remind folks to uh, go check us out at patreon.com slash mission log. There's a lot that happens every day at uh, our Patreon and Discord. That's where you can get early access to our uh, uh, episodes, the pre-recorded, unexpurgated, unedited versions. That's where we have a chat about those episodes. That's where you can get exclusive mission log swag, and that is how you get access to our Discord, which is honestly just one of the best platforms you can hang out with other Trek fans um, and fans of all kinds of stuff. We've got channels in there for everything from 50s sci-fi to Doctor Who to uh, current generation stuff. So check it out. You know what to do? Patreon.com slash mission log. And that will be your key to getting in. All right, so we have some more callers standing by, and I would like to uh, hand things over here to BC. Speaking of people that I see in Discord a lot, and BC, not only calling from a fabulous set, but you've got quite the t-shirt on tonight. You want to tell us about that? Oh, we can't hear you. You are muted. Oh, no, we got to fix that. You got to unmute yourself. Oh, there we go. There There you are. Hey, hey, thank you, well, Earl. Um, yeah, I'm on the deck of the USS Calexico, as I often am. And uh, you're you're playing Super Mario, or yeah, one of the guys is playing Super Mario on the view screen. It's it's, it's a Kaizo hack, I think. Um, <laughs> I love it. What's on your mind tonight, man? Well, I want to say hi to uh, uh, to Doctor Adler, and uh, I have to say the first thing that caught my eye on the cover of your book is that wonderful Chesley Bonestell. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, space wheels. We need more space wheels. Yeah, in fact, I happen to have an art of Chesley Bonstow. Oh, oh, look at that! <laughs> Fantastic, kindred spirits here. I love it. I, if I could yeah. buy original, I would. They're so great. Um, the, that, was, in. that was the one thing I insisted about the book was that it had to have a Chesley Bonstow cover. Oh, I nice! Of this message, yes, I love it. Um, we were talking about mega structures like uh, space elevators, which I don't think we've ever seen one on Star Trek, have we? No. I'll ask Ollie, she knows everything. No, not really. I mean, when he was describing it, the closest thing that I was imagining was actually the the drill in um, 2009 film. Oh, yeah. That, you know, comes down and they pull it back up. and But there's nothing like going up to it. So it comes down and it's essentially like out of sort of space and into the atmosphere. Um, but there, yeah, that's, there's nothing uh, coming up to it, but you know, it's, uh. um, well, these things are like actually big engineering projects. I was thinking like in terms of mega structures, like things that are larger than planets. And of course the one example of that, and I think in TNG was the Dyson sphere, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which is a tremendous idea to explore in a one hour episode of Star Trek, but then it got upstaged by the presence of Scotty. So, you know, you couldn't really <laughs> dive into it. Really but I was wondering if there's any such ideas that you would like to see on the show. I mean, I kind of like the ring world idea. You'd probably have to, you know, call Larry Niven and get yeah. the <laughs> permissions on that one. But what I was wondering what you thought of those sorts of ideas, are they ever going to be feasible or are they just forever going to be in the realm of science fiction? Well, the, the, um, uh, okay, so Larry, first of all, Larry Niven, I think, wrote an episode of the, um, the cartoon from the 1970s. He actually, I think, adapted one of his stories. Uh, yeah, they, they lifted heavily for uh, the oh. slaver weapon with his... Uh, his... Yeah, there is a space elevator, I'm sorry. 
Oh, oh, there it is. oh, oh there break, is. breaking, breaking, breaking news. <laughs> we have there a space is. elevator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, yes, Neelix gets stuck on one in the episode rise. Well, I it serves him right. He wasn't in the kitchen. Oh. So, <gasps> well, well that, that's his job. He's got to feed all those people because they don't have replicators at work all the time. Look, I'm, I'm bringing it full circle, okay? Uh, <laughs> yes, he, he gets stuck on one. Okay. Yeah. Sorry so, to interrupt. Um, <laughs> The, I mean, the issue with, this is something, I remember, I, first of all, I, I suspect that Larry Niven would be willing to let Star Trek use the, uh, the ring world. I, I, you know, I don't know Niven, I don't know, any, I don't know much about him, but the, the, considering that he actually did write an, an episode for the cartoon, then I suspect he's, you know, relatively favorably inclined it towards sense. Um, but I mean, the issue with the ring world, of course, is that rather famously, the ring world uh, was, is unstable. Um, this is actually, I think, something that Larry Niven discovered between the first uh, Ringworld and the Ringworld Engineers, between the first and second books in the, in the uh, Ringworld series of books, in that it tends to kind of slide off where it is and fall into the star, uh, just kind of on its own. You, it, you know, just a little shove kind of just shoves it and makes it fall into the star after a few years. So, I, and that's one of the problems, I think, with big structures like that, is that they are so big. And if something like a ring will be rotating so fast that effectively it's traveling faster than the star can actually really hold it to itself by gravity. So it tends to break apart also tends to kind of just fly away everywhere. Um, that's actually one thing that a lot of people don't understand about the Dyson Dyson's original concept was that it wasn't a solid sphere like they portrayed in the episode, the Star Trek episode. It was actually a shell of many, many, many satellites that would effectively block this. You know, the idea was essentially that a really, truly advanced civilization needs all the energy that it can get. And so basically you'd want to take all the energy that was coming out of the star and use it for the civilization. But Dyson realized that a solid sphere would basically be unstable. It would, you know, again, there'd be huge, these huge stresses on it. It would tend to break apart. Um, it would not really be tethered by the gravity of the star. So what he proposed instead was a very large number of satellites orbiting the star, catching most of its light. So the, actually, the original concept wasn't actually a solid sphere, but actually all these satellites were orbiting the star in lots of weird sort of in lots of weird sort of orbits, which is more state, which is a more stable idea. At least if you can get everything worked out so that everything doesn't come crashing into each all these. <laughs> It sounds like a recipe for them to all crash into each other, <laughs> basically. And he even wrote a paper about how you could actually take the Earth apart to provide material for the uh, for the Dyson sphere. Um, I don't remember much about it. it. Involved playing around with the Earth's magnetic field to try, somehow get the Earth to rotate fast. I think that I don't remember anymore. But he somehow had this idea, I think, of rotating the Earth fast enough to break it apart or something like that. He was a very interesting man. Um, <laughs> but uh so well, he, yeah it, it does start strike me that it's going to have some major hurdles it's like i don't really want to disassemble, disassemble the earth until we're done with it you know to build the, the the dyson sphere or the ring world and yeah the whole tinsel strength of the thing is the other major yeah. hurdle i would imagine but right um, what I, in, in a, a very similar idea, I, I remember reading a very similar idea to that, which is that, you know, in a few billion years, the sun is going to get so hot that life on earth is going to be impossible. And yeah. so what do you do at that point? And so there, I read a, a serious paper, well, serious paper, which had the idea 
that you would essentially go to the Oort cloud or other the outer solar system and start tossing big chunks of matter, comets and asteroids and things like that, toward the Earth. So that as they pass by the Earth, their gravitational interaction with the Earth would gradually make the Earth's orbit get larger and larger and larger to move it away from the sun as the sun got hotter and hotter and hotter and put it into a farther orbit away. And they were talking about the fact that I think you had to time these like, it's down to like, I think accuracies of like 20 minutes or so in order to get everything to work out correctly. But again, I thought that was a really kind of neat, kind of a neat idea. Um, and you'd solve climate change at the same time. Because if you move the earth away, it'll cool down a little <laughs> Well, that, that might actually kind of uh, bring us to something that I teased at the beginning of the episode, because you're, you're talking about these, you know, huge scale projects and you're talking about, you know, billions of years out and, um, you know, sure, you can get to the point where our own sun burns itself out. Then you get to a point where every star in the universe has burned itself out, um, which is, well, look, I, I'm not planning to be here for it. But, you know, for whoever is, that might be, a, 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 you know, a, an issue of some concern. Uh, but you, in your lecture, you brought up uh, an actual theoretical idea of what to do next. <laughs> so assuming that there are intelligences, assuming that there is technology, assuming that uh, they can grasp that, that existential problem uh, of what happens when suns all burn themselves out, what do they do next? Just, you know, for anybody who's listening to this, if they need to tuck this away for when the day comes. The idea was essentially that in about a few trillion years, give or take, I think uh, maybe or a hundred billion years. I'm trying to, I, I don't remember the exact time scale, but this, the ultimately all the stars will in fact, again, use up all their nuclear fuel and, and burn out. And so it, what, you know, what you have to do at that point is find yourself a nice rapidly rotating black hole because it's um, uh, people have shown, in fact, you can actually, you know, even though black holes kind of, you know, once anything goes past the event horizon of a black hole, it can never come out again. When you toss things into it, it's actually fairly efficient at extracting a fair amount of the energy out of the objects and kind of radiating away, either in the form of gravitational waves or X-rays or things like that. If it's rotating fast enough, in principle, you can recover, I think, something like 50% of the total energy of the object. And what I mean by the total energy is the energy E equals MC squared, you know, the energy. You know, Einstein's famous formula, which is a lot of energy and, in fact, much more efficient than almost any other process that we know of. And so, um, you know, you could basically go find yourself a nice big black hole, orbit yourself around it and just toss in garbage until all the garbage runs out <laughs> um, and extract energy from that. Um, it's, uh, the problem, of course, is that Stephen Hawking, one of the things that the thing that Stephen Hawking is most famous for in physics um, showed, in fact, that black holes radiate away energy. Black holes are not truly black, but they actually radio, radiate away energy due, due to a quantum mechanical process called Hawking radiation. And eventually, even the largest ones will evaporate away. And I, th I calculated in the book that it would take, I fudged it, I fudged it a little bit. Um, I, I basically, if you, if you assume that we can find black holes, which are a little bit larger than the largest ones we know of in the universe right now, which are a few, the largest ones we know of right now are a few billion times the mass of our sun, you know, basically really, really big ones. 
Mm. You assume you can find one a little bit larger than that. They could last for a Google years. You know, ten, you know, one followed by a hundred zeros years. And wow. so you imagine that far into the future, you're finding a black hole and kind of, you know, using it as an energy source. You could potentially, then, you know, you potentially last for that long, which is... Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's long enough to solve the next problem yeah, exactly. is uh, you know because when that's gone then that then it's just time to pack up uh because yeah nothing else you can do but but that's interesting that a black hole if it, it becomes like a, a cosmic size mr fusion all the trash goes into it you collect the energy coming out so good uh, well look at least there's a plan mm-hmm. I'm I'm glad to hear it. Forewarned. Uh, what's that? Forewarned is forearmed. Right? Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, BC, any other uh, thoughts tonight? Well, John, I mean, I thought our plan was at the end of the universe, we're all just going to go have dinner at Milliways. The rest that, of the end that, that sounds fine <laughs> to me, actually. That sounds great. Um, and then it, it's a question, who's responsible for the check? Because, mm-hmm. you know. You deposit a penny now and compound interest pays for the meal when you get there. There you go. Exactly. Perfect. (laughs) All right, man. Thanks for calling in and uh, we will see you soon. See you later. All right. Take care. All right. So, uh, uh, oh, uh, by the way, I, I do want to throw out because there were so many interesting topics that, uh, that you cover and there was something in your lecture about, um, you were talking about shape-shifting, and you were sort of addressing this in the Harry Potter world, uh, which you you know say, okay, that's fantasy, there's magic, there, there are some, uh, some allowances that we can give that. Um, but shape-shifting is something that comes up very much in Mission Log right now. We're in DS9, coming up to the end of DS9, and you got a guy like Odo, comes from a group of beings that can all shape-shift. And early on in the series, I want to say in season one, here's Odo, and he's spying on somebody by turning himself into a little mouse scurrying through a cargo hold. And, you know, the very simplified question that we had on Mission Log was, okay, is that a 190-pound mouse? Uh, Because his mass has condensed into this little thing that scurries around, or has he somehow shed off this extra mass um, or do you have, you know, an Odo that weighs just a few grams when he's in his, you know, his full size. So please talk to us about shape-shifting and how that does not work. <laughs> I, I think that may have been the very first episode because I remember that very, I, I think that was in fact uh, my first, I, I, that was one of my first recollections of Odo from the entire series. That may have been, I, I think that was, was actually the first episode of Deep Space Nine. Well, they had to establish the character somehow. Yeah, yeah I had to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember it bugging me even then because, yes, is is Odo basically kind of this shell of a person that just kind of collapses in on itself when reshape changes into something like that? Or are you conserving mass, as you said? Um, conservation of mass is a pretty serious thing. That's, it's one of the most, well, conservation of mass energy really is one of the most sacred principles in all of physics. And so if Odo is in fact going, I, I, I mentioned this in the Harry Potter context when Professor McGonagall turns into a cat, but it, it, I think it works about probably about the same for um, Odo to mouse is that if all of that energy is being shed, that is equivalent to, oh man, many, many hydrogen bombs going off all at once. <laughs> so, so way more than enough to heat up, say, two billion cups of tea yes. again. So, yeah. 
<laughs> doing, yeah, this is yeah, this is this is just letting all that energy go off somewhere. Uh, so yeah, I, I always wondered about that, about what Odo was, and I, I think I actually had the same thought that you had: is is he some form of gas? Is that actually you know is he, is he some sort of gaseous intelligence that's kind of mimicking a human form and kind of collapses down like that? Um, I've hey, only. I- you- Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I'll make it even more difficult for you to point out that sometimes Odo has clothes on, sometimes he doesn't, and sometimes those clothes include his communicator badge. Is that badge made of him? We don't know because it works, and yet he changes, and there's not a badge lying in a pool of goo on the floor. So there's something going on there with Odo. Yeah. Yeah. There were a few, um, there are actually a few science fiction books, no, sorry, fantasy books, I should say, that, it, that address this topic. Um, Paul Anderson, Operation Operation Chaos, which is, I think, from the 1960s or 70s, really does address this issue, which is that the hero of the story is a werewolf, but he keeps his mask when he turns into a werewolf. And so he's he turns into a fairly, I think he's a fairly small human, or you know, fairly short adult male who turns into a fairly large wolf during the transformation. But the mass is kept the same. And I think think it's also implicit in Larry Niven's um, uh, Warlock stories, if any of you have read any of his Warlock stories. But yeah, so I I like, I mean, I, I will say this about fantasy is I like fantasy stories that are written where the magic actually has rules that they tend to abide by. Even if the rules aren't scientific, I actually tend to like the ones better where they try to be self-consistent, which is why Harry Potter drives me up the wall sometimes. J.K. <laughs> <laughs> Rowling kind of invented new spells whenever she needed the characters to do something interesting. Right, right. Uh, oh, uh, good. Shout out from Homer here. He says, good goo questions. So that, that was the goo segment, goo discussion for the night. You're welcome, Homer. Um, I know there's a couple more topics that I want to get to, so I want to bring in, I believe, our last caller for the night, which is John, John Arminio, standing by, and uh, see what you are thinking about tonight and what what questions you have to pose to our special guest. Yeah, um, you know, uh, this is something I've been thinking about, you know, for years, really, but, you know, one of the impediments to making all this technology happen for us is, you know, not only this sort of idealization of ignorance that we have, in society right now but we're sort of obsessed with like the utilitarianism of science like what can going to space give Mm -hmm. us can we put a missile platform on the moon you know that kind of thing so i i guess my question is 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 there a way for us to get past that as Mm -hmm. as a culture and sort of like explore the wonder of scientific progress and space exploration for for the science of it uh, that's a that's a great question, right. um, and in fact, this is one of my. I, I will agree with it. This is what, kind of one of my pet peeves as well, which is that um, we fo- people tend to focus a lot on crewed missions in space, missions that send humans up into space. You had this thing, you know, William Shatner a few days, you know, a few weeks last week. I'm trying to remember. Uh, yeah, a couple of, a couple of three weeks. Mid October. Yeah. Um, and so people tend to glamorize you know, people putting people up into the International Space Station and having them do things there. And people also think about these military or or technological or economical aspects of space travel. But it is ignoring all of the amazing stuff that's been done with um, uncrewed space probes, the Hubble telescope 
the uh, New Horizons mission to Pluto. Um, I, I, you know, I, I was just in awe when the first images started coming back. Have people seen the images of Pluto? No. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I, I have. Yeah, that that also took my breath away. Yeah. Oh, it, Pluto, I, who knew? I mean, who knew that Pluto was one of the most beautiful objects in the solar system? And its moon Charon was one of the ugliest. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, is the idea that it also might have discovered an underwater ocean on Pluto. You know, wow. You know, in the, one of the farthest places away from the sun that we know of. And. So this is all stuff that is just so amazing, and yet people tend not to focus on that. Um, I guess I'm kind of, I, I'm not, I know I'm not giving a great answer to your question. I'm, I'm sympathizing because I yeah. feel exactly the same way. And I don't know if, um, you know, I think, um, I think one thing that uh, I, I, would, I would love to see if we actually highlighted a lot more of the really sort of gee whiz, you know, really interesting stuff that's being discovered instead of focusing on, um, I hate to say it, the, the crude missions are more, have more, I think, I guess, human interest to them. But as far as science goes, as, as I understand, you know, I, I don't think they're nearly as, as scientifically interesting as the uncrewed probes in the sense of billions of miles away. So um, I, I don't Extremely really... partial to the rovers. And yes. when the rovers land, it's a big deal. And then no one really pays attention to what the rovers do afterwards, yeah. which is disappointing. Right. Well, the rovers are so anthropomorphic. They look, um, <laughs> they look exactly like uh, what was that thing from that that um, movie from the nineteen eighties? Oh, uh, uh, like uh, Johnny Five. Johnny yeah, Five. Short, 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 yeah. Short, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's why people love them so much. Yeah, they that that should be the next thing. The next rovers. They they give them a cute voice, and you know, they just they keep playing that part up, and people will follow. Curiosity sings happy birthday to it. <laughs> That's perfect. More of that. That's what we need, clearly. Uh, John, excellent question. Uh, any other thoughts tonight? Yeah. You know, I was just, you know, thinking about other anthropomorphic robots from science fiction. You know, there's there's this sort of like um, dystopian economical nightmare of the movie Moon with Sam Rockwell, where oh. like we're just sending clones to mine yes. for resources in space. So I, I, I want to avoid that. And, you know, lean more towards Gene Roddenberry's vision and, and less towards a cycle of dead clones. Mm-hmm. Uh, spoiler, by the way, for anybody yeah. who oh. uh, hasn't seen Moon. Sorry. It's oh, okay. my God. That movie's been out for so long. And it's great, yeah. though. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Yeah, Sorry. It's great. Yeah, it is a great movie. Uh, excellent. Thank you so much for uh, for calling in. And uh, thank and you. We'll for see you next me. time. All right. Hey, uh, before we say goodnight to our guest and uh, and totally wrap things up, okay, I've been saving this because I, I was so interested uh, to hear you dunking on Star Trek Into Darkness. <laughs> uh, and, and look, you know, we, we haven't gotten around to it on uh, Mission Log. We will at some point. Uh, many years lo- from now. Many years from now. There, there are a lot of thoughts, a lot of feelings that I have about that movie. Uh, but I want you to lay the groundwork here for some of the scientific nitpicks you might have had with that particular film. Uh, I, <laughs> yes, I, it was not a movie I, I, I liked very much. Um, uh, the whole, I, I, I think the, the, the worst part of it was, as I said before, I like it when people are self-consistent, when they use, when they, you know, it's okay if you put super science and stuff that doesn't really work in a movie, as long as you're willing to abide by the consequences of it. Hmm. Um, uh, 
for example, there was a Star uh, there was a Star Trek Next Generation episode whose name I am completely forgetting, where there's a transporter accident which deages Captain Picard down to a young boy. Oh, uh, that's Rascals. Rascals, yeah. thank yeah. you. There you go. They never ever use that again. Yeah. That's the of youth, right? You get you, yeah. know, you put someone in transport, you make them young again. That's immortality, right? Yeah. They never mentioned it again, and that drove me crazy. But it was but, a mistake. I'm sure they figured out how it happened, though. But but a good mistake. Like that that sounds great. They did the same thing with uh, uh, Dr. Pulaski uh, in season two, where yeah. she has that horrible uh, aging disease or yeah. whatever, and they're just like, "Hey, we have a strand of her hair. Pop boom. the DNA pattern into the transporter. Boom! Now she's yep. uh, healthy Normal. again. Now yeah. We'll yeah, back to her regular age. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but. Yeah, then the, the, the trans warp was what drove me crazy in, um, among other things, <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> in, among other things, starting into darkness, the idea that Harrison could just trans warp himself to uh, Con- Kronos, the main, you know, the main yeah. planet. Uh, Empire, yeah, he went to the Klingon homeworld. With yeah. an accuracy of something like a few feet. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's, I, I calculated that. And that's like one part in a quadrillion. <laughs> Accuracy in order to be able to do that from you know Earth to Kronos, wow. not that the planets are moving at different speeds and all these things. Right. And but what really drove me nuts was that um, okay, fine, you can do that, fine, all right. If you do that, why do you need spacecraft? Why do you need starships? Thank you. <laughs> if, if Thank you. They sent Kirk out on this mission, this super secret mission to go in there and not anger the Klingons and sneak in to capture Harrison. Why? Just transwarp Kirk down to the planet, have him grab Harrison to take him back. If the Klingons get angry, threaten that you're going to transport a bomb onto their planet. You know, it's really, you know, you're really not following through any implications of that, of that uh, discovery. So that just drove me crazy because I mean, you know, maybe the Klingons have the transwarp as well, but if that's true, then why aren't they threatening to do the same? You know, it it just just drove me nuts. I, yeah. I just thought, you know, it made so little sense as far as the movie went. I I mean, the movie, to be on, you know, again, the movie was, well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Never, it's okay. Never stop. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. We, we're all about the open discussion on uh, Mission Log. That's fine. Uh, but yeah, that, that was, and, you know, they introduced the idea because you had to, uh, you had to get Scotty on the Enterprise. Uh, we had to get uh, Kirk right. on the Enterprise in the first one. And so you introduce this idea. It seems like it'll be kind of uh, a rare and unique, very difficult thing that only a guy like Scotty could pull off. But as soon as you have it now, you get to use it over and over again in the next movie. And as you point out, make starships obsolete. You could just plant armies instantly wherever you want them to be um, around the galaxy. No problem at all. <laughs> So that that is a bit of a, a tough one to swallow. I, I want to ask you this, though, as we're in our final minutes, because you, you're pointing out something that is clearly a uh, one hurdle too far of your suspension of disbelief. And it's not about the technology itself. 
it's about the internal rules of the Star Trek universe and, and what we've come to accept. And we say, you know, okay, transporters can do so much, uh, but then we bend that rule a little bit and we're, we're perfectly fine accepting that by the time of next generation, they have a longer range, say, than they did in TOS. That, that all is, is okay. What are the things and are, are there um, technological points that, that just take you out of a movie or scientific points just take you out of a movie or a TV show? And you go, I, I just I, I can't watch it. It's too much. Um, a couple of different things. I mean, first of all, again, internal consistency. If, if they're going to do something which is so completely against the rules that they've already put together or they're just not going to follow the implications of those rules – that brings me out with a you know that brings me out just with a jarring sensation. Mm. The other one, and this may seem odd from a scientist, is when the science is the entire point of the episode. Uh, there was an Next Generation episode where Holly's going to know it. You 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 just it, give a few words. It's like name that tune. <laughs> I mean, I missed Rise, you guys. I got clearly. I got to rewatch Voyager. What was the episode? Let's see if I can. Next generation episode. I think it was next generation where they generate some sort of wave through warp space or a warp wave. The Enterprise kind of rides along, and nearly mm. destroys the Enterprise. I it, it was Ooh. probably misremembering. It's, it's been probably two decades since I saw this. I mean, I'm hmm. thinking of generations with the the with energy the, the Nexus, but that yeah, I was thinking of the Nexus because I mean the Excelsior class ship gets stuck in there and it's like. Riding a wave. Um, I, I vaguely remember the episode, so maybe I'm misremembering some part of it. But the thing I remember about it was that the entire point of the episode was, oh, we've got this great new scientific discovery. We're going to use it. Nearly destroys the Enterprise. So clearly it doesn't work. We're not going to use it anymore. And that was the entire oh, episode. Um, is it Newground? I believe. Oh, I believe you're right. I believe. Yep. Soliton wave in yes. new ground. Yeah, yes. Okay. So yes. combination of Dave and Rand, like our, our listeners, they, they, they got it. They're, they're bringing right. their a game tonight. Yes. Real, yeah. I mean, kudos for them for using a Soliton because a Soliton is a real type of wave. Oh, but um, the, there didn't seem to be much point to the episode was what I remember thinking about it was that, okay, you've got this techno babble thing that happens nearly destroys the Enterprise, we're never going to use it again, just going to drop it. Kind of like the transporter malfunction that the ages everyone right. was. Right. Right. And that, again, just kind of made me think, you know, why do I care? <laughs> There's no, you know... And, again, it's, it's... I've never... Again, even though I'm a scientist, I've never been a real fan of stories that just do the science. There's got to be something more to them than the sort of technobabble, even if the technobabble is somewhat accurate and they used a soliton here soliton's a real thing in science they even i'm not sure they might have even used it reasonably kind of accurately right. but it's still a big you know i didn't you know kind of who cares right well uh, and, and to be fair apparently that was also uh, an alexander heavy episode so you're forgiven for wiping it from your memory <laughs> that is okay that that is acceptable hey uh, in our closing couple of minutes uh we, what we didn't talk about was your fandom like what are your fandoms and clearly you have a star trek knowledge and i'm um, just curious like uh, what did you grow up on what are you watching now uh, I grew up on the old Star Trek, for the uh, the original series, which is the one that I know far and away the best. I, I didn't want, 
I am too young to have watched it originally, but I did catch it in reruns back in the 70s. Um, right now, uh, and I was, oh, sorry, and I, I was a big, I, I watched a fair amount of the, of Next Generation as well. And most, and again, also the movies as well. And I will say my favorite of all of the Star Trek incarnations was The Wrath of Khan. It is far. Really? Yeah, Wrath well, of Khan. Well, that might be why you don't like Into the Darkness even more. <laughs> I'm right there <laughs> with you. Yeah. <laughs> much as I like Benedict Cumberbatch, he is not a, uh, he is not a patch on Ricardo Maltobon. As you know, yeah. does not Fair. hold to Ricardo Maltobon. Fair, yeah. Uh, the uh, one, the other thing I did, I will say this also. I don't know nearly as much about Deep Space Nine because around the same time that Deep Space Nine was airing, there was another science fiction show that was airing at the same time, Babylon Five. Yep, which uh-huh. I'm a huge fan of, and um, watched that most. You know, basically spent my spare time watching that. Um, and to me, that was one of the best uh, sort of hard science fiction shows that was ever made. Um, with all due respect to Star Trek, I, I loved Babylon 5, at least the first four seasons of it, and thought that it did a very good job of this sort of, the same, this sort of uh, issue. I don't know how you feel about Babylon 5. or uh, Oh, hey, hey. Maybe going into dangerous territory here. No, I, I, I tell you what, uh, my co-host on Mission Log is a huge Babylon 5 fan, and uh, we have a dedicated channel in our Discord about Babylon 5, because uh definitely has a lot of fans uh, around Mission Log circles. Um, and, and by the way, uh, because we are at 8 o'clock, uh, yeah. I do want to say, I, I'm going to tease this, I'm going to tell Chris, who's in the chat, to go look up uh, Dr. Adler's talk that he gave to the Skeptic Society, uh, because you mentioned Spock's brain, and yes, Spock's brain does get referenced in Dr. Adler's talk, so go check it out. And uh, with that, how can people find you or stay in touch with you and uh, and get your book? Um, well, my book is available on Amazon. Um, I also have a lecture series available through uh, what used to be called The Teaching Company and is now Wondrium. Uh, it's called uh, How Science Shapes Science Fiction. Um, uh, you can... I don't have much of a social media presence. Uh, you can email me through the college, St. Mary's College of Maryland, if you want to, if you're interested in asking me questions. And I will usually, I, I will always try to respond to questions of people if people ask me that. Um, so uh, please do email me if you have any questions about that. Um, I have a blog which is no longer maintained and has not been for several <laughs> years. <laughs> well, well, you, you're going to get an email from Chris Riker that says Spock's brain. What's up with that? And then uh, you guys can just go. All right. <laughs> um, but yeah. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me here. That was, it was, this is great. Dr. Adler, thank you so much. Holly, thank you as usual. I'll see you next week. And then guess what? Uh, Discovery right around the corner for me and you. It's going to be great. All right. Well, with that, Mission Log Live is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Technical production on Mission Log and Mission Log Live provided by the incorruptible Earl Green. Be sure to visit podcast.roddenberry.com for the latest from Roddenberry Podcast. If you'd like to support us directly, give us a look at patreon.com slash mission log. Thank you to everyone who joined us live or later. Stay safe. Stay healthy. We look forward to talking with you next week. This is a Roddenberry Podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.